We're going to take our Bibles for our Bible study this evening, and we're headed to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. If you're just joining us with us this evening, whether you're at home or some of you joining us uh, this week, we heard some of you are in Arizona, some of you are joining from Minnesota, some of you are joining us from the Philippines. Greetings to you folk as well that are part and parcel of this study that we're doing this evening. What we're talking about is we're talking about the end times, and the topic that we're dealing with tonight is that topic, Then primarily I want to focus in on the 144,000 who, because there's a lot of confusion about that. Where we were this morning is uh, very similar to that book that starts off where it's says it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, the tale of two cities. And when we come to that period of time that we call the tribulation, it is the worst of times. We talked about that over the last couple of weeks and how bad it is because it's the worst time in all of human history. And that is primarily because of these, these characters, the false unholy trinity. How we talked about this morning, there's working, they're striving together, they're trying to cause corruption and disruption and deceit and miracles. And they're very, very active. As we mentioned this morning, it it looks like they are unstoppable. In chapters 12 and 13, we read about these characters where Satan is coming to this earth. He knows his time is short. He's angry. He empowers Antichrist and people will respond. They say, who can make war with him? He seems unbeatable, invincible, especially in that last three and a half years of the tribulation, that last 42 months. And then he also gives power to the false prophet. The false prophet who he is the one who institutes and then he initiates and then gets it going, the holy operation of that false world religion that is going to really turn and worship Antichrist. And so these characters together, they're called a dragon and the other two are called beasts. They're very evil, evil individuals that are working during that time period. But just like that book started off, it was the worst of times. It's also the best of times. The reason that I say it's the best of times is there is going to be a harvest of souls that is going to be phenomenal during that seven-year period people will be getting saved. And they'll be getting saved by vast numbers, as we'll see in Revelation chapter 7, when we get to that part this evening. And when you talk about these stories, I just find it interesting, just kind of set the scene, that we talked this morning from Revelations uh, 12 and 13, where we talked about Satan and then the false prophet, and then you have the Antichrist. Look at chapter 14 where it starts right after giving that information about those bad characters, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. <clears> Even with those evil characters, Jesus Christ is showing his incredible ability that he will overcome. They can't conquer him. He will stand on the Mount of Olives, uh, on the Mount Zion. He's going to be there where he's going to collect the people and he will take charge and, and overthrow these individuals. So throughout the book of Revelation, we have these little snippets that keep on showing Christ is in charge. Christ is the ruler. He is going to be the victor. In fact, let me set the scene in another way. And that is in a contextual way. And using chapters, and again, you remember, there wasn't chapter headings in scriptures. But for our benefit, they're there. They were put in several hundred years after the church started. And they put it in for our benefit, and it helps us. Chapters 11 and 12, all about the evil and how they really get control. Chapter 11 talks about God's witnesses who they give a witness and many people respond and hear the gospel. Chapter 14 
gives the idea of many witnesses and many people getting saved and people responding to the gospel in hordes and in, in large numbers to the point that we read in chapter 14 down to verse 12 and 13, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works that, that do follow them. And so you have on the you have in the middle of this sandwich evil, but on the outsides it's bordered by God's good witnesses. The two prophets and the 144,000. Again, it's all designed to give us the picture that God is totally in charge. He puts up the parameters. He is not going to be overcome. And so we're looking at some of those witnesses, the heroes of the faith this evening, the good guys, if you would, the ones in the white hat. So let's start with chapter 11. Let's start with the two prophets that are described in this text. And let me read through, and then we'll just highlight some of the verses and comments as we did this morning. In that similar fashion. We read in chapter 11, starting with verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. By the way, that is, again, the same thing. 1260 is 42 months, three and a half years. And so it goes on. These are the two olive trees, the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire will proceed out of their mouths and devour their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood, to smite the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. And when they have, shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street in the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, the place where Jesus Christ our Lord was crucified. We know that is Jerusalem. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, make merry, shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets of God tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake. A tenth part of the city of Jerusalem fell, and in the earthquake were slain seven thousand. And the remnant were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven, and the second woe was passed, etc., etc., etc. And so here's what we have talking about these two individuals, these two prophets. From this text, what do we learn about them? Let's highlight this idea that the context is in the second three and a half years. The reason we say that is if you look at the, par- the outside verses, outside passages, this is in the, in the time period of what we call the trumpet judgments. And so while he is giving the trumpet judgments, he pauses and explains why it's so bad, why all this judgment is coming. And he talks about the two prophets, the evil that's being done, the 144,000. So we're talking about that second part of the, the three of the tribulation, the second three and a half years or those 42 months. So that's the time period. The witnesses, they are the witnesses, prophets, are they foretelling the future? I don't know exactly what they're saying. 
Are they just declaring the word of God? I don't know what they're saying, but all of that is probably involved in it. That they're giving information, they're challenging, they're doing what prophets did of old. They foretold and they foretold the word of God. And they're clothed in sackcloth, the idea of mourning, and they would be grieving, and we would understand why. Just like prophets of old sometimes, they like John the Baptist, he put on that, that hairy garments, the clothing that we would say was clothing of of simplicity, but also the clothing of grieving with the idea that there's so much wickedness here. There's so much evil going on. It's breaking their heart. How people are turning away from Jehovah God and turning elsewhere. The, this is worth another message. And when we studied Zechariah here a couple years back, we talked about this. That there was that vision of the olive trees that were being filled by the oil that was coming from the tree and filling the flames so that they were a perpetual flame. And back in Zechariah, that's the indication of the spirit that was coming. And the Spirit was giving light and was giving a, a witness, a burning, a burning evidence of God's presence. In the same way that these two prophets, they're going to have that Spirit of God giving them the power, filling them with that oil, that might from God Almighty. They're going to be protected by God in a very special way. Persecuted, yes. And there is attacks that are taking place. Please keep this in mind. There's nowhere in Scripture that says saints are, in, are never going to be attacked. There's no promise of that. Even during this time period, God's chosen saints who have been sealed, as we'll see in a few moments, those who are protected, they're still attacked. They're still having difficulty, and this is happening during this time period. But these two have the miraculous ability to defend themselves. They can call down fire from heaven. They can also then stop the waters stop the rain, they can bring about a drought, or they could bring across a flood. Very similar to prophet like Elijah back in the Old Testament. So they're displaying all of this. Oh, and I wanted to mention this one phrase uh, right at the bottom was, as often as they would. Did you catch that and underline that, where it says in the end of verse 6, this is, this is really, these guys have the ability to do these miracles as often as they would, under the direction of the Spirit of God. So it's not that they're limited by God, they're going to have the power, the presence, the, uh, the uh, approval of God all the way through, as often as they want to bring this about. So they're going to be preaching. People are going to be responding in a very bad way. People are upset by them. In fact, it talked about the people who that they tormented, if you caught that word down in verse 10. The people who were tormented by them, the people who were brought under conviction. The same as, remember, the, uh, the Apostle Paul, where Jesus Christ said to him that he was you know, kicking against the pricks of conviction that were constant. And so people are going to be brought under conviction by these men's preaching. They're going to be tormented. They're going to be, they're going to be brought their evil, their, their, their mirror of what they're doing face to face. And the beast then is going to oppose them. The beast, the Antichrist, as we mentioned this morning, he'll make war upon them. And eventually they're going to be killed by the beast, as we already read in this text. And uh, it only happens, and again, this is one of those little subtle comments that shows God's power, God's authority, that God is, God is even overruling at this time, that it makes the comment that <clears throat> they will, when they have finished, verse 7, their testimony. And so not before then. God is absolutely in charge here. There's a limitation on evil and what they can do. Even though they try to wipe them out, they can't. Because God says it's not time yet. And so only when they finish their testimony, and again, we're making that highlight that Christ is more powerful, and then what happens is these two men are not going to be buried. But many people are going to pause at this point to ask the question, who are these men? And some of the suggestions will come up. And matter of fact, you may have an idea. Who are these two prophets? Anybody have a clue? 
Okay, a lot of people say that it's Moses and Elijah. The reason that they say that is the similarities in their ministries that the men had. And the one reason that Elijah keeps on coming up because Elijah never experienced death the way that others did because Elijah was caught up into heaven by... Okay, that, that chariot of fire, that tornado of fire. And so there was this very similar miracles that are done, and it even talks about Elijah coming before the day of the Lord. These two are the two that were at the Mount of Transfiguration, and both of them did have unusual departures. You know, the, the people who would argue against that would say, well, Moses did die, and is appointed unto man how often to die? Once, okay, and Moses did die, and his body was buried in Mount Nebo, and Satan and Michael the archangel, they argued over his body. So maybe it's not him. Others will say, well, it's Peter and Paul. Others will make the comments that it's Zerubbabel and Joshua. Who are the ones mentioned in the prophecy of Zechariah where it mentions the olive tree? We don't know. The bottom line is we don't know. I, I would not want to be, stand up here and say, I dogmatically believe and am absolutely convinced it's these two characters. I don't know. I just don't know who they are. And frankly, even, even though they're there, I, I don't think I need to know who they are. I'm, I'm fine with God knowing who they are at that point. The, the world shows disdain for them. And the way in the Middle East to show great disdain is just don't bury the body. We see that even in modern times. You've seen that with, mili- with uh, people in the Middle East doing that with American troops, where they have done that with others who are their enemies, and they put their bodies on display to show that they are more powerful, that they have overcome their enemy. Well, that happens at this moment in history, that they don't give them a respectful burial, and it all happens in the city of Jerusalem. We've already identified that as we read through and pointed that out. The city that is called in this text, um, it's also referred to as like Sodom and like Egypt because of the evil that's going on. And then what will happen, as we mentioned this last week, the great evil that is going on, the people will celebrate. They're going to send gifts. This is going to be like you know, a, a national holiday, an international holiday. It's going to be a Christmas. People are giving out gifts one to another, celebrating the death of these guys, which indicates to you, and me. These guys have made an impact around, around the world. They have really influenced people. Now, people are angry, but they have got their message across that it'll have made some tremendous, tremendous strides in getting out the gospel. This is the only time in the book of Revelation that we read about the lost people ever rejoicing, that they're celebrating the death of these two saints. Otherwise, everything else we see about lost is woes, and they're calling for death, and they're miserable. But in this one time, this one moment, that they're going to be celebrating it, and we mentioned our impact is ready. Then what we read, what we already read, is there's going to be a, an unusual resurrection and ascension of these gentlemen. That it's going to happen that all the world will see that the Spirit of God enters into their bodies after three and a half days, that then they stand on their feet. And when we read it, I don't know if you caught it, but all of a sudden in verse 11, the verbs went to a past tense, that they, all, they stood, if you caught that, they stood on their feet past tense, and great fear fell upon all those past tense. Why does he shift in the middle of this text from future to a past tense? Any idea? Because in God's mind, this is a done deal. It's, it's, it's so, in God, this is so definitive, we can speak about it already happening. And that's not the only time this happens. Several times in the Old Testament where he gives prophecies, God in the Hebrew uses past tense to just indicate how absolutely this is decreed, this is going to happen. And again, it's another one of those subtle little suggestions, God's in charge. 
God's absolutely, this isn't something that they're, that they're getting over. Now, it says that when they see these two men stand on their feet in verse 11, great fear fell upon them which saw them. Why? Why do all these people get excited? I mean, get, get fearful, excuse me. Any ideas besides just the obvious? Yeah, yeah you think about this. What, are, what have they just been doing? with one another, sending gifts to one another, celebrating the death of these guys, and then the next thing they know, these guys stand up and they're alive. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, we were just talking about how bad you were, and here you are, alive. And so the great fear falls upon them, and it says then they, they, are, they are called up into heaven. And all of this is happening at this time that the people will see it. This is all happening in time with this earthquake. That he goes on and explains and says the city. Is this the earthquake that is talked about at the end of Armageddon? Probably. Time frame, this is all leading up to the middle of the tribulation. I'm, yeah, the middle of the tribulation going 42 months. And right before Jesus comes back, these two rise again after they've been killed and they get taken up into heaven. And uh, they're joining Christ there who then within moments he comes back, whether it's that day, the next hour, or whatever, whatever the exact timing is, he comes back with the saints, with us, back to this earth. And what happens is the people who see this, this could be part of those Jews in Jerusalem, the one-third that we talked about last week that are surviving all the attacks, that they see this, that'll be influential for them to get saved and when they see Christ, call upon Him as Savior. So it's a tremendous text that, again, talks about God's grace being poured out during the tribulation by giving people a chance to hear the gospel. And how God is going to be working, protecting, and working through. And so these two guys are very, very important characters showing how God is bringing about his promise. His absolute definite way of bringing, the, bringing Israel to a point where the remnant will come to be believers. Now that is, that is these two guys. That is the two prophets, two of the good guys that are there. The others that are the good guys are the 144,000. Their story is told in chapter 14 and chapter 7. Let's start with chapter 7. Let's jump back there. And just here a couple weeks ago, I was talking to an individual who was wanting to do a Bible study in their home with a coworker, or a friend, somebody who was born again. And in that conversation they were having, and, and when I got engaged in this conversation, they were asking me questions about, okay, now let me get this straight. What's happening in tribulation? How do we know it's really seven years? How can we think that it's actually seven years? How can we think that there's actually seven plagues, seven seals? And my comment was, it's because... Those are the numbers that are given. And we believe in a literal interpretation that when the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. Obviously, when he's talking about a man who is like a beast, that is some symbolism explaining some of his characteristics. It's not the idea that the man literally is an animal, but the, the man acts like an animal, which we use that in common speech. We say somebody, he eats like a... Okay, and we use terms like that, you know, that they, that, that descriptive. And so when descriptive words are being used, we understand they're descriptive. But when 42 months is given, we understand it means 42 months, or 1260 days means 1260 days. And the individual said, well, I don't believe that because I don't believe in a literal interpretation because according to the book of Revelation, God only saves 144,000 people. And I was like, What? There is a lot of confusion about who these 144,000 are. There's a lot of groups, and especially cultic groups, they pick up on this number, and they often claim they are this special 144,000. Who are they? 
exactly, you know, are they really, you know, the, the um, Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God? Are they really just those? Or what the Seventh-day Adventists talk about? Are they the only ones who will live with Christ in heaven? Those who are really the devoutest of all believers, the 144,000? Know, there's a lot of this confusion. So let's talk about, make sure we understand exactly what we're talking about. And we're back in Revelation chapter 7. And I, now I'm going to be showing my ignorance because I can't be real definite on a couple of these things as much as you would like and I would like to be. But we read in chapter 7, starting with verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four other angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth with the wind, the fire, and all those other things, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Let's set the scene. When is this? If we go back into our chapter, and we back up a little bit, chapter 6 is the, all the seals. It mentions six of them that are taking place. When do the seal judgments arrive during that seven-year period? The first half. Okay. The seals are in the very first half. This is when Israel is experiencing peace, but they are hearing of the wars and rumors of wars and famines and those things. And so we're moving through the tribulation, and when we, and when we get to the end of the sixth seal, the beginning of the seventh seal, somewhere right in there we get introduced to the 144,000. So somewhere in my indefiniteness, somewhere in that first part of the tribulation, is it right at the beginning? Is it right towards the end of that first three and a half years? I don't know specifically. But somewhere in that time period of that first three and a half years, these 144,000 are introduced. And they, they come into being. I, I kind of want to think they're probably, you know, all the way through. And uh, what, we, what we learn about these individuals is that there's... That when they're introduced, angels are told, stop, don't carry out your judgments totally. It's the idea that there's going to be all these judgments, as we read, which are part of the seals and part of the impact that's happening. And uh, then with the trumpets to follow, which is after the, the middle of the tribulation. And so basically, hold back, don't go any further until we seal 144,000 people. And the sealing idea is a very, very important concept that the servants of God are going to be protected because the seal is basically if you had one of those rings that we would call signet rings that has your emblem, your face, your family, whatever, coat of arms, what you would do is you would press that down on a piece of wax or clay and that would indicate that that's your property. Or you would, you would say, okay, I'm going to protect this item. Okay, I often think, as silly as it is, I often think when you're writing names on uh, in Toy Story that Andy has his name written on the, uh, the cowboy's shoe at the bottom of it and he keeps on coming up in one of those episodes that he belongs to the kid, that he is his. Well, that's the same way that God says, okay, these people are mine. These are absolute, they belong to me and I'm going to protect them. And he makes this comment that this is the seal of the living God. Okay, where Antichrist is going to introduce his type of ownership mark on the forehead, the right hand. God introduces this mark upon these individuals that they're sealed in their forehead in contrast to what the Antichrist is going to be doing. And so these 144,000 are sealed, all of them, not just some of them, but they're all sealed for a permanent spot where God is going to be taken care of. Now, I remind you of some other theology 
that we have now reverted back to a lot of the way the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament did not indwell every believer. The Holy Spirit did not, in the Old Testament era, He did not indwell every believer. He did not seal every believer like He did where Jesus promises in the New Testament church age. Those are ministries of the Holy Spirit. But, and, and that filling of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, it was very selective. The, in, the Spirit coming upon people. You and I, the Spirit is in every one of us who's born again. And so this time period is reverting back theologically where the Holy Spirit worked like He did during the Old Testament era. And so He's going to selectively be on people. He is going to selectively be on these 144,000. They will be sealed by God. They will have that special working that's going to be happening in and through them. And so when we start talking who they are, we get an explanation down in verse 4. They are not some group of of modern-day cult. They are very clearly, I heard the number of them which were sealed, and and there were sealed 144,000 of all the... What's the end of verse 4 reading your Bible? Tribes of who? Children of Israel. And then watch what he does when he goes on. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000. Of Reuben, 12,000. Of Gad, 12,000. Of Asher, 12,000. Nephilim, there's 12,000. Manasseh, there's 12,000. Simeon, there's 12,000. Levi, 12,000. Issachar, 12,000. Zebulon, 12,000. Joseph, 12,000. Benjamin, 12,000. Folk, what is clear about these people's nationality? They're Jews. They're Jews. They're, they're 12,000 Jewish individuals, and we understand from chapter 14, they're Jewish men that are going to be the evangelists that are going to go out and be a witness for God Almighty. And they have a special protection put upon them that God says, these are my guys. These are going to be my special witnesses that are going to go worldwide and share the gospel. And as a result, what happens? We'll jump down into the, and, and maybe you have it. I have a break in my chapter of chapter 7. I have a break between verses 8 and 9. Do any of you have that? Something indicating a different paragraph? Okay, and that, that makes sense. After this I beheld in lo a great multitude, which is how great? Yeah, no man can number. From where? Of all nations, kindreds, people, tongues, stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and were cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne, unto the Lamb. All the angels which stood about, and the two elders and the four beasts, fell before the throne there with their, on their faces, worship saying, So be it, amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be unto our God. And one of the elders answered and said, What are these that are arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said unto them, Sir, you knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in the temple. And he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, shall lead them into living waters, and God shall Wipe away all the tears from their eyes. As a result of this 144,000, we have these people. We have these people from all nations, kindreds, tribes, tongues, who are getting saved, but they suffer. 
when I, when I keep on making that comment that Antichrist will make war with the saints, we're talking about these people. These people who hear the gospel from those 144,000 evangelists, they respond in faith, they still suffer, they still have challenges. How do we know that? Because they hunger no more. They thirst no more. They've been living through a period of persecution. And they finally stand before the Lamb because they've died, they've been martyred, and he wipes away all the tears from their eyes, and he provides and protects them. So in this passage, you have these 144,000 were showing how their witness is so effective. That there will be a great multitude of people. The worst of days, the best of days. The best of days of a harvest of salvation of souls who are then pictured in heaven. And so despite all of the false prophets, the Antichrist activities and works to try to put down the gospel, they're unsuccessful. God's going to be saving souls in the end times. Okay, now the question that you might ask is, well, maybe we should just wait until then, okay, to get saved. Well, remember what happens to these people? They're martyred, okay? So why not get saved now, okay, when it's an easier time to follow and serve Jesus Christ? And you miss all of this. We'll talk about that next week in particular. Let's jump to chapter 14. Chapter 14 gives us the ending story of these 144,000. And again, we're going into that context of now we're into the trumpet judgments. We're in that last part of the tribulation. And so we read about them in chapter 14 where it says, I looked... Lo, a lamb stood upon Mount Zion, and with him the 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. There's the ceiling. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, as the voice of the great thunder, and heard the voice of harpers harping on their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with woman, for they were virgins. These are they which followed the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And then he goes on and talks about another witness by one of the angels. Now we're at the end of that three and a half years where Antichrist has been ruling and reigning. We're at the time where it's just before Jesus is, well, Jesus has descended. He's on Mount Zion at the moment. So the second coming has taken place. The 144,000 are there. They have survived the tribulation, and not one of them was lost. God didn't lose a single one of those 144,000, even though Antichrist made war with them. These 144,000 were absolutely kept. All, every single one of them, none of them deserted. They remained faithful. And they're with Christ when he comes back to Jerusalem. And they have a song that, that we aren't going to sing. They have some, some chorus that they know that we don't know, that they alone sing something unique that they can worship. But the interesting phrase that catches my attention, they're the first fruits. Well, the first fruits is a phrase that means there's more to come. And so what does he mean by they're the first fruits? Could it mean that, and again, I'm, I'm uncertain, could it mean that they were some of the very first that got saved you know, under, during the seal judgments? That they were some of those who turned to Christ immediately when the tribulation began and they called upon him in faith and then they survived all seven years? Uh, or does it mean that these Jews were the first fruits of Jews because we know that many more Jews were going to get saved and many of them who get saved is right when Jesus comes back. But these guys have been ministering already for since the first part of the tribulation. Is that what he means, that they're the first fruits of the Jews? Or could it mean that, okay, at that moment that Jesus is on Mount Zion, he sends his angels 
This is Matthew 25. I think Mike, you asked me about this today, about Matthew 25, how it fits together. When Jesus comes back, what does he send his angels to do? To gather together all those from all the different nations, and then he has the, it's a judgment. The sheep, the sheep and goat judgment. And so is it the idea that these are the ones standing with Jesus and there's going to be many more from around planet Earth who are going to be the survivors of the tribulation and be born again? They will be proven in that sheep goat judgment. I don't know. I don't know. Again, you are, you're wiser than I am on some of these things. But the point is, these individuals, they, they instigated, they, they represented that there was going to be a whole lot more people getting saved. And again, it's a subtle comment that God is going to be victorious in working in hearts, despite what Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet do to turn away people from the gospel. God's going to be working and turning people to the gospel. The worst of times the best of times. And so these guys stand out in that area. The other thing that's mentioned here that's important for us as we bring it to some personal challenges is they are, they are commended for several things that they have done during this period of time, during their service, whatever length that was, seven, three and a half years to seven years, whatever that length of service, they are commended for certain things. Did you see what it was? Jump down in, in the passage where it says, okay, these are they, starting with verse 4. What are they commended for doing? Okay, it's going to be, t- they were not defiled by women. Okay, and again, we know that, that sex is not evil. We, we know that from multiple passages. And then it, but it highlights that these guys, they were dedicated to Christ, they remained single, but they weren't even tempted by all the temptation. Remember society at this point, what is good is going to be called evil, and what's evil is going to be called good. And we read like in Second Timothy 2, how adultery will be so pronounced. Uh, remember as in the days of Noah, as in the days of what other city? Sodom and Gomorrah. So sexuality that is perverted is going to be heightened. These guys remained morally pure. Okay, that's going to be highlighted at the bottom. What else is highlighted? Not only were they pure in sexuality, what else? Okay, it says that okay, they followed the Lamb whithersoever. Okay, the word is they kept on following, kept on following. Okay, even though it's outlawed to follow Jesus. Even though it's hard to follow Jesus, persecution was taking place. Yes, they were protected, but just because they were sealed doesn't mean that they couldn't suffer. Just because you're born again doesn't mean you couldn't suffer persecution. Okay, there, in fact, all who will live godly will suffer persecution. Uh, and so these, these guys, in this sense, that they are, they are faithful, they are fo- they're morally pure, they are steadfast. And then it says, in their mouth is no deceit. Why is that so heightened? Why do they bring this out, that these guys weren't liars? Because they live in a time and a period where they minister that what is the overriding characteristic? Delusion, lie, deception falsehoods. And these guys are telling the truth. They're speaking the truth. Even though it's an unpopular truth, they're speaking the truth. And so we have these things, and it says that they stand before the throne. The idea of no fault is they were not hypocritical. 
They did not say one thing and do another. These guys were genuine. They were followers dedicated to 144,000 for the period of time that they came to belief. They were the evangelists of God. They were truly faithful to God. And so God commends them at this moment. Now, several questions come to mind about the 144,000 to bring us together. The... Um, the comments that I alluded to already, some will say, and you hear this all the time, that, that how is it that only 144,000 stand with Jesus? And they look at this phrase and they say, oh, they're the people who are standing with Jesus when he comes back, so there's only 144,000 who get saved. And why does God limit salvation to just a select group of 144,000? Well, that's not true. That's not true. Look at the multiple contexts of this whole story that we unfolded of, of these guys and their, and their relationship. In fact, it says when they're singing the song, there are elders representing the church. There are others already present in heaven. They aren't the only ones in heaven. And I think that's an important point to bring out to the cultist who says, well, I'm only part of the hundred, only, I'm, I and a few others are the only ones that are the 144,000. Ah, there's more in heaven than 144,000. There's the elders. It talks about in chapter 6, even before we are introduced to these guys, that there are many who are under the altar, who have been slain for the gospel. In chapter 7, we have already read about a great multitude from every tribe, kindred, tongues. There are more people than the 144,000 who are serving God day and night, and God has relieved their, their pain. So don't, don't get mistaken like the one guy who is, who I was talking with here a couple weeks ago where his friend said there's only 144,000 to get to heaven. That's not true. That's a misinterpretation of scripture. There are many people in heaven. These 144,000 were evangelists and a select group of evangelists, not a select group of the only people who are going to get saved or the only special ones in heaven. They were evangelists and that was their job. Aren't the 144,000 actually a picture of the same group that's mentioned as part of chapter 7. Go back to chapter 7. I want you to see what I mean by that. I highlighted, and a couple of you raised your hand and said you have a paragraph break down in, in chapter 7. And some who discuss this, they say, oh, well, the 144,000 were a part of those who get saved and who are making the praises unto God. And you're making them sound like a select group of individuals who God has selected them different than everybody else. And the idea is basically that everybody in chapter 7 is the same group of people. And I differ with that for multiple reasons. Okay, And that is basically in the beginning of chapter 7 from verse is 1 to 8, that's your 144,000. From verses 9 to 17, that's the, re that's the fruit that they bear. That's the people they get saved. The reason being that they're similar but they're different, are, is this, just to chart it this way. We're talking about the 144,000 being the, the redeemed 144,000 in the first part of the chapter. Those who are saved through their efforts. Watch this. You have 144,000, but then you talk about an innumerable number. They can't be the same group. Okay? They just can't be. One is from the 12 tribes of Israel, but the others are from every tribe, nation, tongue, and kindred. They're two different groups. The, the one is standing on the earth, the other is in heaven, having been martyred. But the 144,000 are still on earth. The, the one is sealed for protection. The ones from all the different nations, they hunger, they thirst, they get to heaven and now God cares for them. 
And so two different experiences, two different groups, but they're tied together because the second group is influenced to the gospel by the first group. So there is a connection between them, but they aren't the same two groups of people. Don't let somebody confuse you in the text. Read it literally, understand it very simply. Are they alive today? Are the 144,000? I hadn't thought about this until one of you asked me this question. Are the 144,000 Jews already alive? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, really. You, You think this through, okay? They're real people. And so sometime in the beginning of the tribulation, they're going, to be, they're going to be sent out to be witnesses. Sometimes in that first three and a half years, when it happens towards the end of those first three and a half, beginning, I don't know. But they're sent out to witness. Think this through. They have to be old enough to be going out and being witnesses, right? Okay? They are old enough that they are commended for their sexual purity. So they're adults, who are being sent out. And so if they're being sent out, they have to be born prior to the tribulation starting in order to be adult, in order to be the witnesses. And that means they could be alive today, depending upon when does the tribulation start. That we don't know. But if the tribulation is on the horizon within the next weeks, months, next few years, they could be alive on planet Earth right now. Not believers, but they'll get saved after the tribulation begins. And they'll be the first fruits of the many who get saved during the tribulation. So they could be alive. I don't know. You know, Antichrist could be alive today, yes? Okay, we don't know. We don't know. It all depends when the tribulation starts. Um, how is it, and here's, here's a, uh, any study you do, this is going to come up. So just so you're familiar with it, I don't have an answer. I'll give you the best I've got that I understand. But this is going to come up frequently. How is it that in this passage, verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 of chapter 7, that it gives you the 12 tribes, but it's not the same. Well, let's, let's stop right there. It gives you the 12 tribes. How is that possible when the Jews don't all know their tribe? Okay, their, their records of genealogy and their, their history, in 70 AD, most of it was destroyed when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And so since then, they don't all know their tribal history. It might be passed down orally, but the written records and those which were really uh, substantiable, they, they aren't around. And so how is it that God will get 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Issachar? How is it going to be that God will get those 12,000 specifically from those 12 tribes if those people don't know which tribe they belong to? (laughs) Yeah, it it really doesn't depend upon them. Okay, who's it depend upon? God, and God knows. God knows exactly everything about them. He knows all their bloodline already, so really, who cares if they don't know their tribe? God does. Then we go a little bit further. The 12 tribes, as I was getting to and mixing these two up a moment ago, uh, the 12 tribes listed, the list of 12 tribes given in this chapter isn't the same as some of the other listings of the 12 tribes. As you go through scriptures, you're going to find that, that there's sometimes, not often, but there's a few times where the names are mixed up. And it's not in God's mind mixed up, but they're in our under reading of it, it's mixed up. Like in this passage, Dan isn't listed. The tribe of Dan. Unless it's in your Bible, then you've got a problem. Okay. But Dan isn't listed. And also, Joseph is listed instead of his son Ephraim. And also in this, Levi is listed. Okay. Though in other times, he's not listed. Why is that? 
Why is that that all of a sudden, in fact, you can chart this out, and these are some of the exceptional listings. And if you look at it, not all the tribes are given in every single time the same way. There are some times where one is, is left out, and another one is left out, or somebody else is added. And how do we answer this? Here is one of those texts that all of a sudden the critics of the Bible will jump on their pulpit and they'll say, see, the Bible's filled with mistakes. That, they, that it doesn't have the same listing of tribes every single time. Well, here's the facts of some of the matter. And that is, some 20 times where the tribes are listed, they are identical. And Levi is usually not included in that. Joseph is usually not included, but his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, take his place. And so it talks about the 12 tribes, and especially like the division of the land. The 12 tribes had the division of the land, but Levi didn't get any land. They got the cities. They got the Levitical cities where they, they could go to the temple worship. And so you have the 12 tribes listed for the boundaries of the, of the territory. Levi was not included in that. Okay, and so people will look and say, okay, that frequently happened, that's the way it, but there are a few variations. There are several texts where Levi is included or he's, or he's, you know, he's mentioned elsewhere. There's times where most of the time Joseph isn't, but his two sons take his place, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so you have those different ideas. I don't know why. I can tell you that people will make suggestions, but it seems to me that we really don't know why it works this way every time. But the norm is this. The norm is that the 12 are pretty much standard, but there's a few occasions where, like in this case, Dan was left out. Why is that? Well, some will jump to uh, Genesis 49, and it talks about this evil being in the land of Dan. Some will say that's the false prophet, therefore he's negated. Or they'll point out that in the book of Judges, he was the first tribe to leave his territory and didn't keep the ter- inheritance. Smallest of tribes, first one to go into idolatry. I don't know why he's left out in this one. I just don't know. Okay. Um, he's not left out in the millennial divisions. Why is that? I, I, I don't know. I do know this, that variations are not unique to this text alone. There are other times that it did happen, that there was a switch in the tribes. This much I know, God knows God will keep his people, his covenant people, and will bring them to the promise of all of the covenants someday in the future. I know you would like a better answer than that. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, that's the best I've got to give you on that question. Here we go. Uh, how is it the 144,000 survive when even the two prophets are killed? They're sealed. Okay, that's, that's what God sealed these guys. And God has a different plan for the two prophets than he did have the 144,000. Do you remember in John 21, this very same thing happened? John and John, Jesus is having conversation with John and Peter. And he talks about... Peter, your hands are going to be bound. You're going to be taken away into captivity and you'll die. And Peter's question was, what's going to happen to John? Okay, tell me about him. And Jesus basically said, don't worry about it. That's not your business. Okay, why is it that God chose the 144,000 to be sealed, but he protected the two until the very end when their testimony is finished? I don't know. That's the way God chose, is going to choose to do it. And... These guys, God kept on that protection all the way to the very end because he chose to do it. Um, Question, what can we learn from these? Now, this one I do know. Several practical lessons that we can draw from these, these illustrations of these characters. Number one, the gospel will spread worldwide. That will happen. 
Okay, by, the, by this, uh, these guys, as well as the angel mentioned at the end of chapter 14. I know this, God's knowledge is really tremendous. God knows the 12 tribes. Even when mankind has lost that information, God has the information. Even though some of you have lost the information, how many hairs are on your head? God still knows it. God knows. Here's another one. God's mercy is great. God's mercy is absolutely great. These people didn't get saved before the beginning of the tribulation. But they, end, they enter the tribulation old enough that they can become witnesses and they could have been tempted in their sexuality. So they didn't get saved ahead of time, and yet God gives them a chance to get saved. That's mercy. That's grace of God. Salvation never changes. These are talked about as they give the witness. Remember the people who respond to the gospel and stand before God martyred? They are washed in the blood. Salvation never changes. Even now, as well as in the future, it is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Another lesson. The gospel is effective, and this we need to remember. The gospel is effective in any culture or environment. We hear at times people say, oh no, the place where I work, ooh, it's so hard. No place is harder than the tribulation. And the gospel can be effective. And so we cannot write off people or write off places or businesses or countries and say too hard. God's gospel is powerful. That it can work in hearts. God never leaves himself without a witness. Even in times and places of great evil. Isn't this the grace of God? That God will even present himself and his grace and his goodness. In a world that is totally turned against him. God says I want to give you a witness. I want to give you a witness. I still want to give you a witness. God even can reverse the evil that men do. They kill the prophets. God raises them up. That, that just, that, that keeps, I keep in mind that at the end, they, they're going to almost destroy the world. So many people will, will be killed. But God in the end will reverse a lot of the damage that is done by wicked mankind. Here's another lesson. We, saved people have no guarantee to be free of trials and persecutions. Please do not stop and say, oh, we must be living in the end times because Christians are being persecuted. We were supposed to be experiencing, when I say supposed to be tongue-in-cheek, Christians were going to be persecuted from all through history. It isn't something unique just to the tribulation. In fact, let me throw this out. Somebody asked a question not too long ago. They said, are we living in the tribulation because we have a worldwide pandemic going on? No, just be, there's been earthquakes going on for a long time. There's been wars going on. There's been famines going on. All of these things are not limited only to the tribulation. They are just going to be heightened. But some of these experiences, Christians can still experience death, persecutions, even in this time period. And, and God's very clearly, we have to be faithful like these people were fa- will be faithful. When God seals his saints, it holds the 144,000. You and I ought to get tickled by this one because we're sealed by the Spirit as well. We're sealed in this time period. He doesn't lose us. He won't misplace us. The most effective verbal witness goes along with a lifestyle that is consistent with a verbal witness. Their purity, their faithfulness, their honesty, their lack of hypocrisy, it enhances their witness, and it would yours as well. You've got to be faithful. You've got to be faithful to the Lord. Remain true to Christ no matter what, because He will win in the end. Jesus Christ... His authority, His ability, His greatness is constantly brought up in very subtle ways, but it's there in the passage. Jesus is Lord. He has got a plan. He is in charge. And we worship Him 
Father, we thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that we are sealed by the blood of the Lamb. That we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That we know that you protect us from being indwelt by demons. That you protect us, not, in, not from illness or things like that, but we aren't going to be lost. Once we're sealed by your Spirit, we, we aren't rejected. Once saved, we're always saved. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because otherwise, if we could lose salvation, if we could uh, jeopardize it by our conduct, by our actions, man, a lot of us would be in trouble. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for what you're going to do in the future. But right now, in this time period, help us to be faithful. We don't live in such a chaotic and and catastrophic time. And we have the opportunity and privilege to share the gospel. Use us at this time when the Spirit is still working like he is. Help us to see a harvest of souls from our efforts, our influence, our investments. Please, God, save souls this week through what we have done, what we will do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. I'm glad you were here.